WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time, this is an opportunity for people to call in with their questions about the Bible, uh, where they may need uh, help in their personal study or a counsel in their personal life, and they want to consult God's word and maybe not sure where to begin. Uh, If you have a question or an issue that you'd like to discuss from God's Word, give us a call. Again, the local number is 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number for our Internet listeners is uh, area code 877. And then the call letters of our station, WAGP 980. When you call, you can simply dictate your question. Other folks uh, go on the air live Uh, So however we can help you, we'll be happy to take your question. You also have the option of emailing us directly here into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. So again, let us know how we can help you. Rick, as always, it's great to be here this morning. And uh, we uh, let's go ahead and get started with some of the questions that have come in. All right. We've got a couple of questions from out of town. First, um, if a down and out person who just got out of prison and has an earring and uh, who might be a homosexual encounters you at night at a public tourist hangout and asks for your help and says they're seeking God, And then you read, uh, would you like to have God as your friend tracked with them? And they pray the prayer for salvation. And at the end, they say they're now 100% sure they'll go to heaven. And they're wearing shoes that are too small and haven't eaten in two days. And you give them a ride in your car to get them something to eat. Is that the appearance of evil? Because you could be seen with someone who has a questionable past. You've never met this person before. Uh, Any guidance you could give uh, in regards to guidelines for witnessing to people and helping down and out people would be much appreciated. Well, it's a good question, and we all at some point or another encounter uh, folks like this, some that really represent true legitimate needs and others uh, who do not. Uh, As a pastor, of course, um, you know, we see people who just literally work the churches. Uh, They'll go from one church and move down the street and see what they can do at the next church. And uh, when they come as a couple, we always try to separate them uh, where someone has a chance to speak, say, to the wife and another has a chance to speak to the husband. And what's amazing to me is how often the stories don't coincide. Oh, yeah, Pastor, we needed some gas money. We're heading towards Florida and we just ran out of money. And and then he says, oh, yeah, Pastor, we need some gas money. We're heading towards Kentucky. And, you know, the, the stories uh, very often don't match. And so you, you want to be discerning because whenever you help people, you're either taking it directly out of your pocket, your hard-earned sweat blood money, 
or as a pastor, when we help people, we're helping sometimes out of the benevolence fund. And I view that as hard earned sweat, blood, tithe money. And so, listen, I don't want my tithe to be misused any more than I want anyone else's. It's all God's money, and you need to be a good steward of it. Uh, Note, too, that, and again, I'm not trying to create in your mind here, you know, just an eternal skepticism over people, because there are some folks with some real, true, legitimate needs. Uh, We have a food pantry, and we service over 500 families a month, and, um, only about 20% are repeat. They can only come once in the course of a month. But there's a lot of people who've been to that food pantry who said, I never thought in my life I would go to a food pantry. I never thought I would be in this situation. And a lot of those people represent some real acute needs. And whenever we minister on that level, we also try to do what you did, which I admire you and commend you for trying to share the gospel with this individual. But again, know there are some people who know what Christians are looking for, and they'll pray the sinner's prayer with you and then somebody down the street if you'll give them money. Um, Of course, the wise thing to do would never be to give money to people you don't know, just as a general principle. I'm not legalistic on that. There might be some exception to the rule, but as a general principle. But if there's someone who says, you know, I'm really in need and I, I, I'm hungry or whatever, uh, then, you know, take them to McDonald's or go to McDonald's. Uh, again, driving in the car with them, you, you want to be real careful. Uh, you just don't know sometimes uh, who you're dealing with and who may pull a gun on you or who may be less than honorable. Uh, so you got to be extremely careful when you put someone in your car and you're alone with them. And I'm assuming that this person was not of the opposite sex, which I would not even call you to consider for a moment. No, he so, might be homosexual. Right, he's homosexual, and uh, but still, whatever. Um, you, you want to be very wise. Don't give him money. Say, look, I'll, I'll, I'm going to McDonald's. I'm going to buy you some food. I'll be back in a few minutes. And uh, you can always take that approach. That's probably what I would do and invite them to church or to a Bible-believing church, see how they respond. I was in, uh, it was in another country a couple months ago with my son-in-law, and the lady came up to us. She was from Moldavia. We were in the Ukraine, and she said, you know, I haven't eaten today, and I'm really hungry, and I was wondering if you might, you know, help us. And so instead of giving her money, we bought her a meal. We took her through the plan of salvation. She was from an Orthodox background. You know, typical problems, you know, when you get on drugs and you're addicted to them and uh, you'll sell your body or give your body away for a meal. And it was really, really sad, but we tried to offer her hope in Jesus Christ that things could be different and that what she was doing in the cycle that she was on was never going to change. That the heart of the problem was a problem of the heart and she needed to repent, change her mind about Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. Anyway, so thank you for what you were trying to do to witness to that poor soul. And let me just say, too, taking away all the skepticism, and uh, there are people that you will meet just like this, that God will give you the opportunity to lead to Christ, 
And then years later, you'll hear them stand up in a church and say, you know, I was uh, down and out and on the street and this Christian bought me a meal and told me about the Lord and my life changed. And now I'm married and we have three children. I have a job and I have new direction because I'm a new creature in Christ. So that happens too as well. But no, there's a lot of folks who work Christians because they're gullible and they lack discernment. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Um, Our next caller would like to know whether the Bible references interracial marriage? And if so, what does it say? Well, not as such. Uh, Some people uh, have tried to build a case against uh, interracial marriage, and they've gone to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says not to be unequally yoked. But the context there of being unequally yoked is in the reference of a believer to an unbeliever. Um, Paul says, don't be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. They are rhetorical questions. Answers, they have no fellowship. There is no uh, compatibility between righteousness and lawlessness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. Well, nothing in terms of spiritual value. And then he says, for we're the temple of the living God. So God has said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. So there's a time in terms of compatibility and binding relationships where God says, don't do it. Don't do it. It's unwise. And that would certainly be expressed in marriage. A believer does not marry an unbeliever. That's not a prohibition against an interracial marriage. There are examples in the Scripture where people marry outside of their race. Uh, Now, race is somewhat slippery in terms of what race looks like. You know, if you put all the various uh, colors of men on a map, you know, you can start on one end that's very dark and the other end that's very light in all kinds of different types in between. And then even amongst the different racial tones, there's uh, different facial features. There's Chinese that look different from Japanese who look slightly different from Filipinos. And so, you know, God says a believer is not to marry an unbeliever. That's the prohibition. He does not prohibit interracial marriage. Now, there have been some racists and some Christians who had racial undertones that they needed to work through that have taught that, but that's not a biblical doctrine. Um, so you got Moses who marries, you know, a woman who is not a Hebrew, but she was obviously a believer. Uh, you have Joseph who marries an Egyptian who's not a Hebrew. Those are two different races. Uh, you say, well, they look somewhat similar. They are, but they were still two different races. And again, when you think about it logically, we are all interrelated because Unless you've adopted the false theology of theistic evolution, we all go back to Adam. We all are kin in one sense because we are from one man, Adam. And Adam was the whole human race. And that's why the Bible says when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And we are therefore shaped in iniquity because we made that choice in and with Adam. And so we inherit the Adamic fallen nature. So in the end, we are all related. Now, let me just say this is a caveat. Um, If you marry someone of a different race, uh, and the more radical the difference, uh, the more um, potentially pronounced problems. 
Uh, and that that's true in just a lot of areas of compatibility, not just race, but culture and education. And, you know, if you're a person who has had a lot of education and you're marrying someone who has had no education, that doesn't mean you're not compatible or that it might not be the will of God for you to be married. Some people are self-educated uh, and they've never had a, a formal education where they have a degree written on it, but they are self-educated and incredibly bright folks. But you, you, let's just say you marry someone who is from a very different educational experience than you are and you can't converse on certain issues that are important to you and that you want to discuss or then, you know, you might find yourself um, in a relationship where it's not an ideal thing. And two, when you marry sometimes interracially, people bring from their culture uh, major differences that you have to be willing to adapt to. And sometimes two people can adapt just fine and do fantastically But on the other hand, they discover that the families that they are now attaching themselves to don't approve the marriage, and they have to live with that their whole lives. So just, you know, weigh the cost, like Jesus said. When a man goes out and he builds his house, he he sees first if he has enough money to to complete the job, otherwise it's half done. Or if a man goes out to attack another army, he he makes sure that he's well-equipped so that he has an opportunity to win. And so you count the costs and you weigh those issues before you jump into it. But in the end, it, what matters is not what men think. In the end, what matters is what God thinks, whether God has called you together because he's the one you give an account to when you meet Jesus in heaven. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at net. As has this listener, uh, they write, I recently heard a local pastor in Beaufort make a remark about people saying they were under the blood of Jesus. He said nobody has that blood that flowed down the cross and that it's not the chemistry that atones for our sin, but the life of the blood. So he debunked the notion of being saved by trusting in the blood that was shed at Calvary. Can you please explain this confusing rhetoric for me? Well, you know, Sometimes there are pastors who take offense at pastors like myself who will speak about the propitiation, uh, the satisfaction of God's wrath that was received by the blood of Christ. If you are studying with us in the book of Romans, we're working through Romans verse by verse. Right now we're in a paragraph of scripture that Uh, Luther called the most important paragraph in all of the Bible. Calvin called it the heart and soul of the book of Romans. It's a very important paragraph. I told our people last week if I had to be uh, stranded on a desert island and I could only have one book of the Bible and I had to choose, I'd probably choose Romans. And if I could only have one section or one paragraph, I think I would choose the paragraph we're studying right now. Uh, It's a very, very important paragraph, and one of the things that's highlighted in that paragraph of Scripture is how the blood of Christ satisfied God's wrath. Yes, the life is in the blood. That's why the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But there are pastors who will take offense at that, and so they'll get into mental gymnastics and say, well, what's important is not the blood of Christ, but the life of Christ." Well, yeah, the life of Christ is important, but the life of Christ couldn't save us. 
it was the death of Christ. It was his substitutionary death on the cross that bore the wrath where he himself in his own body bore our sin, Peter says. It says in the Bible, we've been redeemed not with uh, silver and gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb. The blood of God flowed on that cross that day. You say God has blood. I thought God is spirit. He had blood when he was on this earth. Uh, The Lord Jesus purchased his church with his blood, the Bible says in Acts chapter 20. So the blood of Christ is nothing that we should ever be ashamed of or that we should ever back down on. It is the means by which God redeemed us through the substitutionary death of the Son of God. And any pastor who denies that, who questions it, who speaks against it, shouldn't be listened to. I wouldn't entertain a pastor like that for two minutes. I'd be gone out of that church so fast. Even if I was visiting that church, I would leave. I don't want to listen to some heretic and subject my family or my wife or other people to such heresy. So I have no idea who you're speaking against or about, but indeed it's heresy. And remember, there are scores of people who are in ministry today who will often use Christian language, but they're false teachers. And of course, they're going to talk about sometimes even being born again or having Jesus in your heart. And they'll use phraseology. That's how the devil works. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he does, so don't his servants, Paul will argue in 2 Corinthians. So we're not to be naive. We're to be alert. We're to be discerning. We're to know our Bibles and you had a red flag and a check in your spirit, and that was God warning you, this guy is somebody you don't need to embrace or endorse. If you're in a liberal church, leave it, because if you're a good Christian person and you're in that liberal church, you're giving endorsement to that pastor. People will look at you and say, well, you're a good Christian, and you go to that church, that's where I need to go. And if he's a false teacher— and he is a man who does not preach the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, then you're inviting people by your participation in that assembly to uh, endorse his ministry. Well, people say, it's so hard for me to leave. You know, my, our family's been here for five generations. My parents are buried out back, and so isn't my grandparents. Well, you know, if they could get up and leave, they would, but they can't. But you should, because the Bible teaches we are to separate from false teachers. And it may have been a good church at one time, but churches can drift. Let's go to the next uh, caller. I think we have a live caller, don't we, Rick? We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks. Um, I'm just looking for a little little direction to help with a family member. Um, um, I have the same beliefs as you. Um, Jesus Christ is our Savior and the only way through through him, the only way to heaven is through through him. But um, we have some family members who um, continually quote John 3.16, but they don't live by the Word. And I know the Bible tells us that hearers of the Word but not doers of the Word will not inherit the kingdom of God. How can I explain to them that they need to also be doers of the Word and not just be quoting John 3.16 all the time? Well, it's a good question. It's a fair question. Let let me um, just say a couple things. Uh, We were speaking, in fact, this past Sunday about what Jesus referred to as a phony faith. Uh, Sometimes you will see the word believed in the Bible, and it is speaking of not necessarily true conversion. Uh, It's obvious in some passages, like when James says, well, the demons believe and and tremble or shudder. 
Uh, they obviously are not converted. Uh, in Luke eight thirteen, Jesus speaks of the rocky soil where there are some who believe for a while, and then in time of temptation or testing, they, they fall away. And again, uh, I quote the Luke passage in the parable of the sower because Luke is unique to adding that little uh, in, uh, addition, they believe for a while, unlike Mark or Matthew. But the thrust of those parables, of the parable of the sower, is he's describing three reasons why some people don't get converted. And in the fourth soil, he describes why some people do get converted. And indeed, some bear more fruit than others. So sometimes you will see phrases in the Bible where it says someone believed, but the context bears out they're not true believers. Sometimes they're called disciples, like in John 6. But when Jesus uh, went from, you know, feeding some 20,000 people and started talking about sin and dealing with the hard issues, then all of a sudden thousands left. And Jesus turned to the 12, the handful who are left. He said, were you going to leave too? And uh, they said, well, who else has the words of eternal life but but you? Um, and so Jesus made it clear there that these learners, which is what the word disciple means, uh, were unwilling to embrace him as Lord. We live in America. We're still in some way, shape, or form. Approximately 90% of Americans identify with Christianity. Uh, you're in South Carolina. If you were raised in Beaufort County, you were raised in the Bible Belt. And I'd say probably 98% of the folks in this county that I meet who were raised here, if you ask them, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, they'll say yes. Now, I doubt seriously that if Jesus returns today that 98% of the folks of Beaufort County would go to heaven. Remember, Jesus reminded us amongst those who confess Christianity, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are those that are on it. Narrow is the gate, small is the road that leads to life, and few find it. Now, when he gave that quotation in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, He was not dealing with the various isms of the world, like Buddhism and Hinduism and Confucianism. He was dealing with people who said they were Christians. And of those who say they are Christians, he said, here's the reality of it. Many are on the broad road that lead to destruction. So you have Americans who are more Christianized but aren't necessarily born again. So this is where I would start with them. Number one, I would just pull back the veneer to see if they really understand the gospel. Uh, yesterday, um, someone walked up to the place where uh, my daughter and son and I were at to, to, to buy something. They're moving. And uh, she said, oh, I know your voice. I listen to you on the radio. Oh, I said, fantastic. Where do you go to church? And she told me, and I didn't say anything. I know the pastor there doesn't believe that hell even exists. But I knew right off she was in a liberal church, a liberal Presbyterian church. I won't tell you which one. Um, and then I asked her, well, let me ask you just a couple questions. I'm always curious. She said, go ahead. She said, I'll probably hear you on the radio say, you know, oh, you talk to this person. And so here I am, I'm talking about her, but I'm not revealing who she is. I'm, uh, I'm being careful here. I said, how sure are you? 95%. Um, you know, why should God let you into heaven? Um, she said, I believe there's a God. I believe Jesus came to earth and I've been a good person. I said, do you think your good works would help get you into heaven? Absolutely. I said, well, here's the problem. I said, the reason I said, well, if you're 95%, I asked her one other question. What do you think you'd have to do to be a hundred percent certain that if you died, you go to heaven? She said, be like God. 
And I said, well, you know, really, in one respect, by the way, she was right. Um, You have to be like God. You need the righteousness of God to get into heaven. You need to be as righteous as God is, and man can't achieve that on his own because our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. So I gave her a DVD. My my daughter brought one out. I said, look, come visit Community Bible Church, and I'll give you a DVD that explains how to be 100%. I only had a few minutes with her, and and my daughter came out, and she said, Dad, you know, the next-door neighbor that we'd been sharing with who— you know, the one whose husband is dying of cancer. They just watched the DVD and she thought she needed to return it. So she brought it back to me and just five minutes ago and here it is. And so I gave it to that lady to watch. And it's a DVD that you might want to give to your in-laws or, and it's called, would you like to have God as your friend? They can actually watch the message online as well at searchthescriptures.org or cbcbuford.org. And in the beginning of the question, the beginning of the sermon, it asked some diagnostic questions on a scale of zero to 100. How certain are you that if you died, you'd go to heaven? And on what basis would God let you into heaven if he were to ask you, why should I let you in? And it pulls back the veneer of people who can quote John three sixteen, and who know the verse. It's the most quoted, most memorized verse in the world, but have no idea as to what it means. And so you might discover in just asking those questions that while they can quote John 3.16 and while they say they believe in God and believe Jesus is the Son of God, like that dear woman I met yesterday, they have no understanding of what the gospel is. So in New Testament theology, they basically believe about Christ, but they don't believe in Christ. And there's an eternal difference. There's millions and millions of people across America who believe about Christ, who go to church every week, but they don't believe in Christ. And there's a huge difference. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. Uh, That's the repeated admonition. By the way, whenever the word, the, the preposition in or into is accompanied with the word belief in the Bible, it is always referring to genuine, true believers. Uh, So, That's where I would start with them. Now, assuming they know the gospel, assuming they really understand the gospel, but there's no life change and there's a lifestyle that contradicts it, then you can start somewhere else. I was dealing recently with someone who said they were a Christian, but they had been living in a life of immorality for a long, long time. And I said, you know, while you may think you're a Christian, the New Testament will give you very little assurance that you are. And I took them to some passages like Galatians 5, where it says the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Didn't have to read any further than that, because this is those first three had been this person's lifestyle. And then he concludes that verse by saying that those who practice such things, or you could render it those who live like this have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Uh, Those who belong to Christ, will say a few verses later, have crucified the flesh in regards to its desires. Now, a Christian has the capability, a true Christian, of committing any sin possible. And that's why the whole section in Galatians 5.16 begins with the admonition, walk by the Spirit that you won't carry out the desires of the sinful nature. Because the spirit and the flesh are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. We have to depend upon the spirit. But the unsaved man who doesn't have the spirit of God living in them, who've never been regenerated by the spirit, don't have that option because they have to be saved first. And so you're not saved by works. It's not faith plus works. 
but you're saved by a faith that does work, works being the fruit in evidence of conversion. And so if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. So encourage him, start, watch that DVD. If you want a copy of it, stay in the line. We'll send you a copy or mail it to you, and you can ask them to listen to it. But if they are willing to listen, tell them to stop the DVD. When the questions come, write down their answers and then put their answers into the mirror of Scripture. Let's go to the next caller who's waiting patiently. All right. Thank you very much. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. I have a question about Saul. Uh, <clears throat> I know in the Old Testament that the Spirit worked differently than it does now, whereas now when we become born again that the Spirit dwells us and our salvation is secure. <clears throat> but Saul, I know the Spirit came upon different people just intermittently or at different times in the Old Testament. And in chapter in First Samuel chapter sixteen, verse fourteen, it talks about that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And then it also talks about that um, over in chapter eighteen mm-hmm. it says the same thing: how the right. distressing spirit of the Lord came upon him. So I was just wondering, like, was Saul? Do you think? saved, or was he never really saved? Or It's a great question, and let me just say first that there are good Christian people who debate whether or not we will meet Saul in heaven. Um, certainly, you're right. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was different in that dispensation than the way he functions today. He functions in a different fashion today. For instance, no one under the old covenant was ever indwelt by the Spirit. Now, they could have the anointing of the Spirit, and they could have the help of the Spirit come upon them, but he never lived in them and sealed them for all of eternity. Whereas today, um, the Bible says, in him, in Christ, you, having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Uh, And Paul will say later in Ephesians 4, the same epistle, that you're sealed for the day of redemption. So today, when a man believes, the moment he believes, he's born again, he's indwelt by the Spirit of God, and he's indwelt by him forever. And so he does not leave us. He remains in us forever. Under the old covenant, that was not the case. There were select individuals upon whom the Spirit of God would sometimes come. He would not permanently indwell them. He would come upon them, but would not indwell them forever. And that's why Jesus could say of John the Baptist, uh, though he's the greatest man ever born of a woman, even him that is least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John. Why? Because John died as an Old Testament saint. He never saw the day of Pentecost. He had his head cut off before then. And that's why today we are privileged to experience some things that no old covenant saints Saw, And that's why in Psalm 51, David prays a prayer that was an Old Testament prayer when he says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me uh, in Psalm 51. And David, of course, is praying that in his confession over his sin of adultery and murder. And of course, uh, he had witnessed what you referenced this morning, how the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. 
That's what the Bible says. An evil spirit came upon him. And so the spirit of God had come upon him as God's anointed one, but then he left him. And again, you know, we can debate whether or not Saul will be in heaven or not, because there are things that took place under the old covenant that are distinctly different than for new covenant saints. Even King David had more than one wife, and he was a man after God's own heart. Uh, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, had a bunch of wives. Now, I'm sure many of them were just political associations. Sometimes kings would marry someone, would never sleep with them, but they had them, quote-unquote, as a wife, as a a political ally, because now they were married, and it brought a certain amount of protection between a couple of different nations. Um, But there were things that were allowed under the old covenant, Jacob, Uh, one of the progenitors of the nation of Israel, one of the founding fathers who ended up having 12 sons. And of course, God renames him uh, Yaakov to Yisrael, Israel. And uh, he has 12 sons that form the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Uh, You know, he, he had a couple of concubines and he had two wives. Under the new covenant, these guys wouldn't even be considered believers, wouldn't even be considered children of God. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that prohibits the fact that Saul could have been a believer. There are some Old Testament saints who lived unrighteously where God later gives commentary either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament that tells us that they were not believers. Like Esau, for instance, is of the evil one. The New Testament tells us. So he, and it's a, it's a verb tense that says, you know, today, even now, he's of the evil one. He's of the devil. Uh, He was never genuinely converted. We won't meet Esau, unfortunately, in heaven. Um, So there are some people that you know about. Saul's one of those people that if it were crystal clear as to whether or not we will meet him in heaven, there would not be good godly people who would debate it. But certainly the Spirit of God came upon him. You say, does that automatically mean that he was a believer? Not necessarily. The Spirit of God came upon uh, um, Balaam. Uh, the prophet of unrighteousness, and God spoke through him. Uh, And yet the New Testament uh, includes him in the book of Jude as an apostate, as a false teacher. Sometimes God would accomplish his purposes through unbelievers. He'll call Nebuchadnezzar his instrument uh, because God uses him as an instrument. And when he used him, he was an unbeliever. Uh, God would work in the hearts sometimes of pagan kings. Uh, to accomplish his purposes. Now, I think Nebuchadnezzar, we will meet him in heaven. I think he had a conversion. In fact, I preached a sermon once on the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, But when he was used of God as an instrument to bring judgment on his people, at that point, he was not a believer. So God can accomplish his work even through unbelievers. And so we could debate whether Saul was in heaven or not, or we'll see him in heaven um, in a good godly people debate it, but um, that's for another day. Let's go to our next caller. I sure appreciate the question he's asked. All right, indeed. Five two five one eight five nine toll free eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero or email us at tbl at wagp dot net. All right, our next caller uh, asks: um, When the Bible references the double-minded and the lukewarm, are they the same thing? And are those who are double-minded or lukewarm saved? 
Um, certainly they can be. Um, for instance, let's talk about the double-minded sense. That's the first on your list here. Um, the scripture tells us that we are to respond in faith. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. How can we consider a trial something we should be joyful about? Well, if we understand how God uses trials for his people, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And here's the choice we have to make and let. That's a decision. Let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete. Perfect there meaning mature, teleos, grown up. Incomplete, lacking in nothing. So God wants us to allow trials that don't happen accidentally because all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We're to let trials have their net effect. If we don't, then God usually has to repeat it. Now, sometimes when you're in the thick of a trial, you say, why God? And so in the context He says in the next verse, and we often apply it to finding God's will for our life. And that's certainly a legitimate application, but don't miss its original context. When you're in the midst of a trial and you don't understand, God says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In fact, the verse says, but if any of you lacks wisdom. And again, he's going back to what he just said in verses two and three. When you're going through a trial, consider it joy because God wants to use it to mature you. But if you lack wisdom as to what God's trying to accomplish, you, you pray. And God gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. He's addressing Christians, save people, remember, because though everyone born of a woman experiences trials, Job says, Uh, They don't always work together for good for the unbeliever, but they do for the believer. If we're going to experience trials, at least for us, there's a real purpose in them. And so if we lack wisdom as to what purpose God is trying to accomplish, we're to pray and ask him for wisdom. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea and is driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so there are sometimes believers who pray, and they pray with a planned answer. They don't really want to know what God's purpose is. And so so they're saying, okay, Lord, I want your purpose. And then when God reveals it, that obviously isn't your will for me. And they're double-minded. So we approach God with, God, I'm willing to receive and accept your will. And God knows that there's a temptation sometimes for his people not to do that, to buck against his will. So a double-minded person, even a lukewarm person, can at times describe a believer. It shouldn't describe us. That's why there's admonitions not to be lukewarm as uh, the one place that it's used in the New Testament in the Revelation where he's addressing a church, a group of believers— Um, look, I'd rather have you hot or cold, but certainly not lukewarm. So it is with double-mindedness. God wants us to, you know, choose sides as we walk with him day by day by day. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, again, 525-1859. If you've got a question on today's Bible line, and our next caller uh, would like to know, how long did Nehemiah remain in Babylon? A listener had uh, heard various times uh, up to 12 years. 
Well, you know, um, I don't think we can definitively say. And what you might want to do is go to searchthescriptures.org. And in my opening sermon, I do the historical background on the book of Nehemiah, the setting in which Nehemiah finds himself. So if you go to searchthescriptures.org, and it will say books of the Bible. And one of the books that I've preached through verse by verse, chapter by chapter is Nehemiah. And if you click on that and you click on the opening sermon, I address that issue. So it's kind of an armchair question. So let me direct you there. You can download it for free into your computer. I don't think that one is one that you can watch visually, but you can download it into your computer or you can just listen to it on live stream at searchthescriptures.org. All right, very good. Uh, Chris from Chesapeake, Virginia asks, what does the Bible say about going into debt? Well, it certainly discourages debt. Um, God doesn't prohibit debt uh, in all cases. Sometimes people will take a verse out of Romans where it says, owe nothing to any man except love. Um, Again, what does he mean? Does he mean that we shouldn't ever owe anyone money? And two, a lot depends on how you define debt. Most would define debt as some long-term obligation. For instance, right now I'm indebted to South Carolina Electric and Gas because I got my um, electric bill yesterday and I haven't paid it. I will pay it. I've never missed a payment by God's grace. Um, but uh, you, you would say, is that debt? Well, not not really. Most wouldn't consider that debt. That's just a, a monthly bill, so to speak, that you know, you're know you obligated to pay each month. Now, it could become a debt if I didn't pay it by the due date, and then that would be something that would not be good and certainly maybe not the best testimony. But there are Christians who live beyond their means. If God gives you $30,000 a year to live on and you spend forty because you've used a piece of plastic and you've charged things, then you've really, I think, violated a principle in God's word. God says live within your means. The problem is, is that we have often defined needs in a way that God doesn't define them. And so we want to upgrade our lifestyle beyond what God has called us and entrusted us to live in. And so then we've lived very unwisely. But to say that all debt would be sin would be wrong. For instance, when um, in the book of Deuteronomy, when God gives uh, that series of blessings and cursings, and you might want to read uh, 28 through 30. And in that portion of scripture, God says, listen, if you will obey me, then I will, I will bless you and you will live on a different level than the nations among you. And when God describes that blessing, among the blessings that he describes is that instead of your being the uh, borrower, you will be the lender. Question, when God says that here in Deuteronomy, is God encouraging his people to sin? Obviously not. God says it can be a blessing to lend. Uh, to be in that position where you have enough money where you're not the borrower, but you're actually the lender. Well, if God calls that a blessing and he says that this is something that Israel might be in a position to do if they honor his word, and this is some conditional aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. There are some promises that God gave to the nation of Israel and to believers today that are unconditional. There's no um, condition that you must fulfill for for the promise to be met. For instance, God has promised me I'm going to receive a resurrected body someday because I've been saved. That That's going to happen, and it has nothing to do with me. But there are other promises that are conditioned 
on my obedience. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. That's a conditional promise that God made. And here in this chapter in Deuteronomy, God is giving a conditional promise that if you obey me, one of the blessings of your obedience is I'll make you the lender rather than the borrower. So you take a passage like that, scripture interpreting scripture. If it was prohibited to borrow in any and every circumstance, then God was leaving, leading his people into evil. And he never does that. He never tempts his people with evil. So what you might want to do, though, and I think this would be maybe an encouragement to you, would be to listen to a really a a seven-hour seminar I did on financial fitness God's way. And if you listen to that seminar, I walk through what the Bible says about stewardship, about debt, about uh, giving, about saving, about lending, about investing, and about budgeting. And it's very, very in-depth. But let me just say as a caveat here, for the most part, debt is discouraged in Scripture because the borrower does become the lender's slave. And I walked through that. You know, when is debt debt? When should you, you know, run from it? Uh, When could you consider it? And as a general rule, uh, I, I believe the biblical principles is that, you know, in your daily bread kinds of needs, you shouldn't go into debt. Now, you may use a credit card for convenience. You go buy your groceries and you you put it on your credit card for convenience and then you minus it out of your checkbook as something that's already spent so you don't live beyond your means. Uh, So when the credit card bill comes in, it's already been minused out, but you're doing it for convenience and you're using the uh, credit card for that basis. And if you can't manage a credit card, tear them up, throw them away. Uh, because you're not qualified but uh, to use it. But listen to that seminar. It, you, you need more than just that. You also need to know what God says about saving. There's a time to save. We're to learn a lesson from the ant, Proverbs 6, so in time of plenty, uh, when the times of need comes, you don't have to put it on a piece of plastic. You have that emergency fund, so to speak, that you could use. Now, I think that seminar would be a great encouragement to you, and you'll find a lot of freedom and managing your finances God's way. It's more than just tithing. There's a whole set of principles that work and function together. Let's go to our next live caller. All right, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Good morning. Um, I have a question. This is Darlene Conley. And um, could you explain Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-two for me? Okay, let me just turn there for just a second. And hope you're having a good day today. And it's my birthday. Oh, it is. Well, that's yes. that's very nice. Very nice. Let me just turn there. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 32. No, 22. 22. Okay, let me let me just back up just a little bit. Uh let me just say that in this chapter of scripture to put some context into it. Uh he's he's talking about a time when uh the despondency that the nation of Israel was would feel because they would be captive in Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah, for those who are not familiar with the book, he is a pre-exilic prophet, and he preaches to the people uh, in the southern kingdom primarily uh, dealing with the fact that because of their disobedience, they're going to be carried away into captivity for 70 years. And God promises, though, through the prophet that there will come a time when that time of captivity will be lifted, and God will bring the people back into the land. 
But there would also be a, a real spiritual lifting, too, when the new covenant is enacted. And he makes the promise, of course, in this chapter about uh, the fact that there will be a time when they will experience a blessing of God that no Jew had ever known. And, of course, that's possib- that can be fulfilled under the new covenant uh, today through the shedding of Christ's blood. So here in verse uh, 21 is the one you mentioned. Uh, 22. 22. Let me just back it up for in verse 21. He says, set up for yourself road marks, place for yourself guideposts, direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went. Return, O virgin of Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. And thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in the cities when I restore their fortunes. Again, this has to be read contextually. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it, the farmer and they who go with flocks. For I will satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. At this I awoke and looked. And my sleep was pleasant to me. And then he says that this is going to become a reality because days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow uh, the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast and so on and so forth. And he uses all the symbolic languages, language that will be fulfilled in the new covenant. So what he's speaking about here is a time in the future which Israel has never experienced. Now, there has always been a remnant of Jews that have believed, and Paul echoes that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Even in the worst times, in Elijah's day, there's always been a remnant. But for the most part, in this day when Jeremiah is speaking, the Jews are in apostasy, but there's coming a day when they will believe. And of course, the fulfillment of this chapter of Scripture is given in the New Testament as taking place during the time of Jacob's trouble, another expression that the prophet Jeremiah uses. And the time of Jacob's trouble is an equivalent expression to what today we call the Great Tribulation Period. So during the Great Tribulation Period, the Jews are going to have some road signs that they need to follow. And God's going to make them plain and clear through 144,000 preaching Jewish evangelists. And he's going to tell them to direct their minds to those signposts and to follow those signposts because God is going to create a new thing where a woman will encompass a man. And he's using here spiritual language. It's an analogy of what is going to happen in the future when God's people are going to be regenerated by the Spirit of God and men and women are going to know the Lord in a way that will not be unique as it was under the Old Covenant, where just men in Israel had that special access to God, like Moses and so forth, where he's going to go on and say a little bit later in the chapter that I'm going to write my law within them and on their heart and put my Spirit in them so that they won't teach each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me, men and women alike, from the least of them 
to the greatest of them. Anyway, we look forward to that day. Let's go to our next question. I think we can squeak in maybe one or two more before we're done. Indeed. Um, Liz from College Station, Texas writes, I'm conflicted about two issues in the New Testament that I'm trying to work through. The first is the issue of uh, judging one another in uh, Matthew 7. Does this mean hypocritical judgment? If someone's living a destructive lifestyle that is blatantly opposed to biblical principles, would it be judging someone to point this out? I am called judgmental, holier than thou, and mocked by some people who profess they are Christians, which is very hurtful because I'm only trying to help them. Also, I'm wrestling with the issues presented in 1 Corinthians 5.11, as well as 2 Corinthians 6.14, which deals with not uh, not associating with unbelievers and those who live destructive lifestyles. I have people that are in my own family who are described here, and I'm conflicted on how to apply this in my relationships. Well, a couple of things. One, let me first deal with the subject of judging. Um, again, for a really long, detailed answer, go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the sermon that I preached on Matthew 7 from the Sermon on the Mount series. And I deal with this whole concept of when judgment is allowed and when it is disallowed. Not all judgment is sin. In fact, do this. Uh, the most recent sermon I did is on Romans 2, 1 to 3 where I bleed together that passage where God condemns the moralizer for judging others, and I bring it together with Matthew 7 and also a text from John's Gospel. Because in John's Gospel, it says to judge with righteous judgment. So all judgment is certainly not forbidden. And I give six or seven examples from the New Testament where God allows his people to judge. But I also talk about what Jesus does not allow in Matthew 7, 1 to 3. So listen to the sermon, Romans 2, 1 to 3. Uh, Let me respond, though, um, maybe it's just a semantical issue here, but the Bible doesn't teach that you're not to associate with unbelievers in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul said, look, um, we'd have to leave the world if that were the case. In fact, God wants us to reach unbelievers with the gospel, not in a compromising way where we are influenced by them. The Bible says, don't be deceived. Bad company does corrupt good morals. But Jesus was a friend of sinners. Because someone was a friend to you when you were lost, uh, you have found Jesus. But there is a time for separation, First Corinthians 5 says, with a so-called brother, someone who says, I'm born again, they give all the right theological confessional terms, but they're not. And with that kind of so-called brother, God says, you're not to associate with them. You're not even to have a meal with them. So there's a big difference between the way we relate to people who say and confess that they are born again and those who do not. And there is where to respect that that difference. We need to be rubbing shoulders with a lost world, not in a way in which they are captivating our hearts and influencing our behavior, but in a way in which we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. A lot of questions we didn't get to. Sorry, but God willing, our next time together, we will be able to do that. Uh, This has been the Bible Line, and it's rebroadcast on the Internet. And you can go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to this or send the link to a friend if that would be helpful to them. Thanks for being with us today. I hope you have a fantastic day. May the Lord bless you as you seek to love Christ and obey him.